The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What if we rediscovered our own privacy, our own hidden life, a place where our opinions and ideas didn't need to be constantly proclaimed, seen, and approved? What if we were taught that the world cannot be perfected, that irregularity cannot be overcome, that ambiguity cannot be ironed out? What if we found ways to live in a difficult and uncertain world instead of being overwhelmed by its imperfections. Now, even though this podcast is still on hiatus for brand new episodes, what I wanted to do tonight was bring back uh, one episode from the archives from last summer. Listeners will know that uh, I spent a good deal of time last summer recording a series of essays from a book I was writing then called Notes from the Grid. And I only wanted to bring back one of those essays here today to celebrate the publication of the print version of Notes from the Grid. And that is where those questions that I just read come from. What if we understood that the only real problem is meaning and where we choose to find it or create it? What if we sensed that none of our categories or attempts at identity can completely represent or explain us? What if we accepted our own complexity. And so I ask each and every one of you out there who's been listening to this podcast for a while, and those of you who are new to it, that if you are moved by what you're about to hear, if what you're about to hear speaks to you, if it just simply makes sense, do consider getting a copy of the book. You can find a link to it in the post description. It is about 17 years in the making, and I doubt that I will spend 17 years on anything else like this ever again. I doubt that it will ever take so long to write so few pages. It's only about 100 pages. And because of that, it's very close to me, and it feels like perhaps the best thing that I can do outside of my own poetry. And so I hope that some sense of that comes through right now as well as in the book that has finally been released today. There is a sense of make-believe about much of life as if it were a play, 
I buy books that I won't read for years, or I keep up the appearance of my house for the sake of a future I am not guaranteed, not just a year or five years, but just a day. And so much more of what we do, or become attached to, it all involves a future that we are not guaranteed, and yet we play along. There's always this tension between living in the moment and preparing for the future. But preparing for the future almost always wins out, so that our present is bogged down with duties, assumptions, and apparent obligations that we don't question, even though if we did question them, we might put a handful of them aside and find ourselves happier. It is a lovable trait, it's a lovable thing that we do this. It is a very human thing to do. And perhaps planning for the future beats out living in the present because we can pretend to have control over something that hasn't arrived, while our control over the present is very obviously, and it's shown over and over again, is very limited at best. We are all playing a part, it seems. We are all acting in a drama, or more likely we are all players in a comedy. We are playing a game. I used to say that when I worked in retail in New York City and was confronted with men and women of all ages, all done up almost too impressively, that I was reminded of dress-up day at kindergarten. And I used to say that when I handed these people their bound reports or their signs or just their copies, it reminded me of coloring class. It was bizarre, it's still bizarre to me, that the business world could apparently not get going without this pretend seriousness of reports and signs, these horridly grave images of what it meant to be a, quote, professional. Especially if you saw, as I did every day, that on some level the image wasn't working. And so these people had to be hard and disagreeable to everybody. I used to say these things. I used to say it reminded me of kindergarten. It reminded me of coloring class, and I didn't understand what these professional people were doing. And even in the most economic city in the world, why do they have to do this? And I wonder what COVID has done to that professional life, uh, not just in a place like Pittsburgh, but in a place like Midtown Manhattan as well, with people uh, working remotely and such. I used to say all these things, but I can't say them anymore without also mentioning that artists and writers and, quote, intellectuals also have their own dress codes, their own poses, and their own cliches of moodiness and irritability. Because I'm pretty sure that when I started wearing a trench coat as a teenager, it had very little to do with keeping me warm during another Ohio winter. If I tell this story anymore, it is simply to say that we all do some version of it. We are acting in a play. Now, it's been pointed out to me how selective sects like the Mennonites or the Amish are 
in shunning technology. After all, the machinery and the tools they do allow themselves were once as new as the wheel. How did they draw the line, I was once asked, at 1850, or whatever it was? Buggies and trains were the hip thing once. What is, where did, how does this play uh, that I'm talking about, that we are all acting in? How does it relate to, for instance, what the Mennonites or the Amish do? It seems that they only knew that a line, however arbitrary, needed to be drawn. Some limitation needed to be produced so that they could have discipline and order, and in the case of the Mennonites and the Amish, also of community. And so they saw that a line needed to be drawn, and they drew it. Completely arbitrary, but they drew it, and it worked. And uh, they have what they need. We are all selective in this way, though. Many of us draw different lines in different ways, and we pretend that our lines, political lines, dietary lines, cultural and religious lines, we pretend that they are somehow eternal and not a matter of choice when they are actually entirely preferential, yet no less meaningful despite that. Even the choice which is made to follow in the footsteps of a hallowed tradition whether a family tradition that's only a few generations old, or a religious tradition, I think of Hinduism or Judaism, that is, that are both thousands of years old, that is still a choice. And this is the essence of what I mean. So many of us become so attached to whatever our preferred way of life is, especially to those parts that we believe we were meant to live, or were, quote, called to live, that we don't see that other meanings and other callings are possible and necessary. These ways of life that we value so much are a play and a game, yet they are also our lifeblood. They're both, you see. They really are actually both. And I think this is almost the key to the whole book, to uh, Notes from the Grid. They are a play, they are a game, but they are also our lifeblood. In another incarnation, we could cling to a different way of life and live just as meaningfully. The meaning and the strength are not in the specifics, but in the discipline and hopefully the empathy derived from living with any form of imposed order or care, no matter what it is. Yet, we are so strange, inevitably clinging to the point of conflict, only to the specifics, always to our country or religion or ideology or form of art, we make life so unnecessarily difficult. We are singing in our opera. I think of that line in Paul Thomas Anderson's movie Magnolia, where the elderly character who is on his deathbed is hacking out his last words, and one of the things he says to his caretaker is, um, life isn't short, it's long. Life is not short, it's long. And, and that's sort of what I've been realizing in the writing of all of these essays over the past 16 years. I realize that as I'm feeding my cats, I also realize that there are both homeless people and there are starving children in the world. And yet, so many of us have pets. 
or that there are wars and famines and totalitarian governments, and yet the people use millions of dollars to do things other than address famine or dictatorships, or that with diseases in need of cures, there are scientists involved in apparently less urgent matters than pursuing those cures, or that with every trouble in the world, music is made, books are written, photographs are taken, or a group of friends goes out for lunch and has a nice time. The poet Robinson Jeffers writes of, quote, divinely superfluous beauty, end quote. And our opera is something like that. Once we find and isolate them, and once we remove the shells of commerce and opinion and judgment that surround them, the things we actually value most of all are, from any practical perspective of simple survival, they are entirely superfluous. They don't warm our bodies, they don't satisfy our stomachs, they don't fill our bank accounts. They are useful for being useless. In the terms of uh, one of the other episodes, they are useful for being unable to uh, be twisted in a way that can make money or make us friends or something like that. These are our loves, if we are lucky enough to have them. And these are our secret joys, if we are lucky enough to have those. And these are the things we don't get paid for. And these are the things that no one, except perhaps those closest to us, will ever know about. Boiling it all down, it sounds like this. These are the moments that we live for, and they are rare. The rest is a game, but we have to play it. And that's the basic knot. There are moments that we live for, and they are rare. The rest is a game, but we have to play it. And there does not seem to be a way out of this knot, the knot in which all of these things are bound together and dependent on one another, unless you escape the world entirely, go off the grid or become a monk, or decide that you don't want to be around people anymore. Uh, there's no way of getting away from one or the other. And it's incredible to find that in the Epic of Gilgamesh and in the Buddha's discourses, someone says something like, we all live our lives and laugh as if it will last forever, as if death isn't possible at every moment. And in the Christian Desert Fathers, one disgruntled monk says, we have to render an account of our whole life before heaven and earth, and you can laugh but we do laugh. And in many ways, there's nothing better than comedy. Uh, I think we know that even more after the years 2020 and 2021. Um, how many people on YouTube that uh, my wife and I have gone to simply to laugh amid everything that has been going on since 2020, or we might say even before then, we do laugh, and in many ways there's nothing better than comedy. We do live our lives. We do enjoy ourselves, and we do accumulate meaningful things, superfluous or impractical though they are, because they are somehow divinely beautiful, both passing and eternal, 
both here and gone and here forever, both utterly random and arbitrary, and yet also firm and life-sustaining. Since converting to Judaism, one of the personal prayers that I try to say every day includes this line. It says, thank you for time. Thank you for the awareness and the experience of time. Thank you for the awareness and the experience of those things that are short-lived and those that are long-lasting and the meaning you give to them both. So that I can no longer say, I can no longer say, as I may have once done, that we could do with pruning some of the short-lived things in the world in order to see the divinely beautiful things more clearly. I can no longer agree completely with Robinson Jeffers when he says quite beautifully that permanent things are what is needful in a poem, things temporally of great dimension, things continually renewed are always present. Grass that is made each year equals the mountains in her past and future. Fashionable and momentary things we need not see nor speak of. I can't say that anymore. I could, I could say all of it except that last line. Fashionable and momentary things we need not speak of. Because I would say instead that where possible, the fashionable and the momentary things need to be elevated, not ignored. Since if we can't find meaning in the mundane and everyday details of life and commerce, we've only jumped back onto the poisonous wheel whose goal is escaping quote, regular life, for something more rarefied and pure, a mindset that inevitably sows division. The essence of life, the essence of love, seems to be the habit and surprise that we can find in the mundane, those moments that Emily Dickinson wrote of, which distill amazing sense from ordinary meanings. The young man I spoke about at the beginning of these episodes on Notes from the Grid, the young man who just wanted to stuff his life with huge and obvious expressions of creativity, he would have cheered a remark from the poet W.B. Yeats, who said that, quote, the tale of Troy is quite near to me, probably much nearer than anything I read in this morning's paper. But Yeats's life shows just how much of an exaggeration this was, since he never stopped throwing himself in, into the political and social upheavals of his day, and few poets combine such an involvement with everyday life, also with mythology, folklore, and autobiography. I have come, in the end, to be much more sympathetic with Stephen King's remark in 2003, responding to those writers who were proud not to have read authors on the bestseller lists. And Stephen King says, Do you get social or academic brownie points for deliberately staying out of touch with your own culture? It may seem strange for me to have waited until the last minute, the last uh, section of, this, uh, of these episodes, of these podcasts, to say that I don't think pop culture is the enemy, but I really don't. It's just that it's presented to us as if it is the only thing, as if it is everything, but it isn't. 
Each one of us has a private culture of our own, something only we or maybe only a few dozen people like. We simply have to admit that something is more important, that anything is more important, that anything is important, whether a million people enjoy it or only a few thousand do or just one, and that pride in huge numbers or knee-jerk snobbery in small numbers accomplish nothing. The novelist Philip Roth said something along these lines a few years before he died in an interview. Here's what he said. Uh, last night uh, I was in New York. I went to see the third in a series of uh, Shostakovich quartet recitals that's being given by the Emerson Quartet. And th these quartets of Shostakovich are unlike anything else in, in the 20th century. And a third of the hall was empty. This is Alice Tully Hall in uh, Lincoln Center. Now, that's okay with me, and it's probably okay with the Emerson Quartet, and it's okay with Shostakovich. But the people who were sitting there were not stuffy or elite. They were people who uh, find great pleasure and sustenance in listening to Shostakovich. Now, the young man that I wrote about at the beginning of this book that I spoke about in the first of these episodes on Notes from the Grid he seemed to believe that art and religion were the point of life, whereas now it seems beyond obvious that I am alive, and only secondarily do I need to make a poem or an essay out of any of it. Nothing is necessary, nothing is required, except to the pursuit, however it is, however we do it, except for the pursuit and the search and the finding of meaning, of joy, of bittersweetness, of perpetual learning. It is strange, on the one hand, that life exists at all, and it is stranger still that it exists in this way, in any way, in all its ways. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.